On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is all about wood chippers on the side of the road during a snowstorm and a missing woman. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Richard Crafts was born December 20th, 1937 in New York City. He was one of three children. He had two sisters and his father was John Crafts. John Crafts was a former college football player and a pilot in World War I. He went on to be a successful businessman in Manhattan, but he had dreams of moving his family to the suburbs. A dream which was realized when he bought a sprawling home in Darien, Connecticut. This was a pretty affluential place to be. Richard got to go to private school, but he was not a real standout there. He did graduate from Darien High School, but without distinction or any special honors. He attempted to go to college, but it wasn't long before he dropped out and joined the Marines in 1956. While he was in the Marines, Richard was drawn to aviation, and he got really good at flying helicopters. He also trained on fixing winged aircraft and became a certified pilot in the late 50s. Richard was transferred to Korea and Japan in 1958, and while he was there, he flew planes for Air American, which was kind of a branch of the CIA. He apparently, reportedly, supposedly, flew some clandestine missions to Southeast Asia, including Vietnam and Laos. Richard remained in the Far East for quite a few years before eventually returning to the U.S. in 1966. Back in the States, it didn't take a lot of effort for Richard to get a job as a pilot. He flew for a few different companies before landing a pilot's job with Eastern Airlines, which at the time was one of the country's largest airlines. So Crafts was making good money and there was no shortage of work. Despite his busy work schedule, Crafts still made time to hit the social scene. In 1969, he met Hella Nielsen. Now at the time, Crafts was engaged to someone else. But despite this, he and Hella saw each other over the next few years. According to Hella's friends, Crafts and Hella fought pretty often, even in public. Despite this, the two always ended up staying together, though her friends did not care much for Crafts. Some of them were even openly hostile towards him. They also didn't understand why the beautiful Hella kept putting up with Crafts. Hella had long blonde hair, was fit, and had this amazing smile. She probably could have had just about any man she wanted. And much to her friend's surprise, the fact that she kept tolerating the unpleasant laughs was a mystery to them. Let's talk about Hella for a minute. Hella Lork Nielsen was born on July 7, 1947 in Denmark. She grew up in a little village just north of Denmark. She was a bright, outgoing girl who loved school, who made friends without much effort, and even as she grew from a child into an adult, she maintained that easy manner, made her super likable to everyone that knew her. While she was still in her teens, Hella showed an aptitude for foreign languages, and as a teen, she learned English and French, and was also able to understand Norwegian, Swedish, and German. Hella went to college in England and afterwards worked as a live-in nanny in France. 
While living there, she got herself a job with Capital Airways as a stewardess. She loved getting to see new places, and this job certainly gave her that opportunity. When Pan Am Airways put up a notice that they were looking for a stewardess in Copenhagen, she put in her application. Out of 200 applicants, Hella was one of just eight that were sent to Miami, Florida for training, where she stayed in a little hotel close to the airport, and this place hosted other stewardesses, airline employees, and even pilots. Her friends recall that even though Hella wasn't one to talk about her romantic life in detail, she did have a couple of lovers during this time. It seems like mostly pilots. Since Hella had previous experience being a stewardess, she finished first in the training class. On May 24, 1969, Hella is at the motel near the airport waiting for a flight when she meets 31-year-old Richard Crafts. Crafts is a 5-foot, 8-inch, kind of scruffy-looking dude whose dark hair often looks like he hasn't taken a brush to it in a while. He doesn't at all look like what you'd expect a pilot to look like. Really, he was just kind of an ordinary-looking guy, and yet he was never without a female companion. He pretty much only dated stewardesses and liked to prattle on and tell tall tales about his time with the CIA, as well as some alleged combat that he saw in Indochina. Hella and Crafts were on again, off again for the next six years, and in 1975, Hella found herself pregnant. The couple go to New Hampshire in November of 1975 and tie the knot. The next year, the Crafts bought a home in Newtown, Connecticut. Hella gave birth to their first child, and as the next few years go by, she has two more children. After the third, Hella goes back to work as a stewardess. Dawn Marie Thompson, 19, was hired as a live-in nanny or an au pair to take care of the Crafts' kids. Through this time, Richard was still flying and wasn't home very often. The two of them together, Hella and Richard, made more than $125,000 a year, and for the 80s, that put them in the top 5%. Crafts was in control of the money, and he spent a good deal of it indulging his passion for collecting guns. Now, this love of gun collecting had been a part of Crafts' life before Hella, and he'd already garnered himself quite the collection. Once he had a home, that gave him the space to get more. He spent a lot of time when he was home cleaning the weapons and organizing them. He would also go to as many gun shows as he could that were in New Jersey or Connecticut so that he could buy more. Crafts wasn't just buying guns and ammo, though. Nope. He liked to buy lawn equipment like tractors and mowers and even a backhoe that cost 25 grand. A backhoe he never actually used. At one point, there are enough broken-down pieces of equipment laying around the Crafts' place that neighbors think the place is an eyesore and that the house looks like it is in desperate need of repairs. So while Kraft gets to spend money on whatever he wants, Hella has to pay for all of the household expenses herself, and on top of that, Crafts would just pack a bag and take off for a few days, and Hella wouldn't know if he was working or at another gun show or just somewhere else altogether. Hella was also seen in public with bruises on her face. Crafts isn't home much, so you'd think he'd want to spend whatever time he did have with his family. But that wasn't on Crafts' agenda. Instead, he up and decided to become an auxiliary police officer in the town of Newtown. This was an unpaid job, but Crafts took it to heart. He spent his free time hanging out at the station, even when he wasn't on duty. And he'd take off and go on calls without proper authorization to go. He goes to expensive training seminars, and he pays for them himself, all to learn how to be a cop. 
1986, he does get hired as a police officer in Southbury, Connecticut. He got paid a whopping $7 an hour for this job. Keep in mind, he's still a pilot. Crafts went so far as to buy a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria, which was the same type of car the state police drove. He spent even more of his pilot's earnings to put radios, lights, and a siren on that Crown Vic. Flying planes, policing the neighborhood, and buying guns wasn't all Crafts was up to. Throughout his whole marriage, he was also seeing other women, something which Hella was aware of. No one is quite sure why she tolerated it. The most likely reason was for the sake of the children. She did, however, talk to her friends about getting a divorce. And finally, in the summer of 1986, she'd had enough and got a divorce lawyer. And shortly after, hired a PI named Keith Mayo to get evidence on Richard. Mayo was a former Connecticut police officer. So let's visit the night of November 18th, 1986, and I'm going to do my favorite in-the-moment habit and switch to present tense so we can walk the crime in real time. A bad winter storm has come to call in central Connecticut. The roads are bad and getting worse as the storm hangs out over the area around Newtown. There's snow and sleet covering everything, and some wicked winds are busy knocking down trees and power lines. The area loses electricity for a few hours in the night. Public employees for the town of Southbury are called in to plow the snow and salt the roads. For the next few days and nights, the snow plows are working nonstop to keep the roads clear. Joseph Hine gets to the municipal garage at 11.30 p.m. on November 20th, gets his sand truck out so he can start laying sand on Route 172. At 12.30 a.m., he goes back to the garage to swap out the sander for a snow plow and heads back out to plow along Southbury's Main Street. For several hours, he plows, and at 3.30 a.m., Joseph goes along River Road up to the intersection of South Flat Hill Road. The sleet and snow are not letting up. Once he gets past the intersection, he sees a vehicle off on the side of the road. To him, it looks sort of like a U-Haul box van with dual wheels. It's a dirty white, and the square cab looks orange. The vehicle lights aren't on, and when he gets closer, he sees a wood chipper, attached to the back end of it. The chipper looks pretty old to him, and as he passes the U-Haul, he sees a man standing near the driver's door. This man quickly begins to walk towards the rear of the vehicle. The man starts motioning for Joseph to go on by. Joseph does and keeps on plowing. At 5.30 a.m., Joseph is still plowing, but now he's going back over the same route, but in the opposite direction, to clear the other side of the road. When he gets to the Glen Road area, there is that U-Haul with the wood chipper. This time, he does not see the man, but the back of the U-Haul is open, and there's some wood chips inside, and there are some wood chips on the shoulder of the road as well. Joseph keeps plowing until the U-Haul is no longer visible in his rearview mirror. Needless to say, Joseph Hine finds it very odd that someone would be out in that awful weather chipping wood. December 1st, 1986. Private investigator Keith Mayo makes a call to the Newtown Police Department to report that his client, Hella Crafts, has disappeared, and he is afraid she's been murdered by her husband, Richard Crafts. Mayo insists that the police investigate immediately. Mayo has been told that Hella left home on November 19th to drive to her sister-in-law's house in Westport, but she never showed up, and she hasn't been heard from since. 
Her car has been located in the employee parking lot of Pan Am Airlines at Kennedy Airport. Richard Crafts is no stranger to the Newtown Police Detectives. He has been an auxiliary police officer since 1982. On December 2nd, police interview Crafts, and he tells them that on the night before Hella up and vanished, she was happy and didn't seem to be upset about anything. He says that he and Hella had woke up that morning, and the plan for the day was that Hella was going to head to Crafts' sister's house in Westport because they didn't have any power in their own house. Crafts then tells police that he hasn't heard from his wife since November 19th. Now, I think if I were a detective, I'd find it very odd that this man's wife has been missing 12 days, but it isn't him that reports are missing. It's a private investigator. Apparently, the Newtown police are very concerned over Hella's disappearance. They feel that the majority of missing people turn up safe and sound. And at some point, if this was a troubled marriage, maybe she just needed some time to herself. Over the course of the next few days, and several interviews later, the police begin to rethink this idea. They talk to friends of the family, including neighbors and some of Hella's co-workers. Almost every single one of them says that Hella is a devoted mom and she never, ever would have left her small children this way. They also tell police that Crafts is a womanizer and he has a hell of a lot of affairs and that recently Hella had found a specific girlfriend of her husband's in New Jersey that Crafts has been seeing for literal years. Right before Hella disappeared, she had told several of her friends that she was going to get a divorce as soon as she could. Police also find out that Crafts is running around giving different stories to different people in regards to his wife's disappearance. He tells one that Hella has gone to Germany. He tells another he has no idea where she's gone. Two days after Hella vanished, on November 21st, Crafts tells their nanny Dawn Thomas that Hella flew to Denmark because her mom is ill. A friend of Hella's, Lena Johansson, gets her hands on Hella's mother's phone number in Denmark and gives her a call. Hella's mom is not in the hospital, is in good health, and did not expect to see her daughter Hella until the upcoming April. This is not what Lena wants to hear, so she goes to police and tells them what she's found out. She also tells them something else. Earlier in November, Hella had said to Lena, quote, If anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. End quote. That's very disturbing, to say the least. Now, the police interview Dawn Marie, the couple's au pair, and she tells them that on the morning of the 19th, Crafts wakes her up at 6 a.m. and tells her that Hella has left to go to his sister's house in Westport and that Dawn and the kids and him will meet her there later. Dawn thinks this is weird because the power went out in the middle of the night and the visibility because of the storm is so bad. Why would Hella have left on her own to head that way? Crafts wakes up his three kids at 6.30 a.m. and loads them and Dawn into the family car and drives them over to his sister's house. He drops them off and then leaves immediately. Of course, Hella isn't there like Richard said she would be. At around 7 p.m., Crafts returns to pick up Dawn and the kids. Hella never showed up throughout the day. So later that night, back at the Crafts house, Dawn asks Richard, where is Hella? He tells her he doesn't know. The next day, Dawn asks him again, where is Hella? This time, he says that Hella went to Denmark to be with her ailing mother. Dawn tells police that this is when she first noticed that some pieces of the carpet were missing in the master bedroom 
as if they'd been cut out. Richard's explanation is that he spilled kerosene on the carpet. Now the police are finally getting a picture, and it is a suspicious one. They ask Crafts to take a lie detector, which he does, and he passes. This is on December 4th. Now we all know that polygraphs are not admissible in court, but they can be a good tool for investigators. Unfortunately, the fact that Crafts passes the test and it doesn't show him as deceptive leaves them with nowhere to go. One investigator writes in a report that based on the polygraph and other conversations with Crafts, it doesn't look like Crafts knows where Hella is. Despite the fact that he passed the lie detector, there are detectives who suspect Crafts. Obviously, Crafts is odd in the sense that why does a well-paid pilot also like to pay policeman and ride around in a pretend police car for a few bucks an hour. And Dawn's statement makes Kraft sound shady, along with Hella's friends, who said that if something happened to Hella, they shouldn't think it was an accident. During this whole thing, Hella's friends are calling the police station, wanting updates. All of these things seem to point to something sinister, but they do not have any evidence against Kraft's. They pull him back in for another interview, hoping to get something that will allow them to move forward. On December 11th, Crafts is doing the night shift at the Southbury PD. The Newtown detectives call over to Southbury and ask them to send Officer Crafts to them for some more questions. Crafts gets there at 9.20 p.m. in full police uniform. Lieutenant Michael DeJoseph and Detective Robert, I can't pronounce his last name, have gotten some questions together already and they are prepared. I'm going to paraphrase the questions and answers just so you get a feel for Crafts and the way he responds to questions. They ask him if he knew that Hella had hired a PI or that the PI documented Crafts' relationship with the lady in New Jersey. Crafts says simply, no. They ask him why Hella would tell her friends she was afraid to serve the divorce papers to Crafts and that her friends needed to check on her if something happened. Crafts responds by basically saying that it was totally out of character for her to say something like that. The police ask, what's the deal with the bedroom rug? Why did you remove pieces of it? Crafts says, all the rugs in the house are being removed. And when they ask what was spilled on the bedroom rug, he tells them kerosene. His explanation for removing just pieces of it, he says that cutting two feet of the rug out at a time makes it easier to remove. When they ask where is the rug, he says in the Newtown landfill. They ask him why he's handing out different stories to explain why Hella is missing. He says he didn't want to say that his wife was gone and that he didn't know where. They also ask him if Hella has gotten any mail since she left. He says no, she only gets about two letters a week and she hasn't gotten any lately. Pretty much, Crafts has an answer for everything he's asked. While he comes across as cooperative, he's also very careful about what he says, and the police do not catch him in any out-and-out lies. He also does come across as super bothered or upset that his wife is missing. After the interview, Crafts gives the police a one-page statement that doesn't help them in any way, except in the sense that they are now more sure than before that Crafts has something to do with Ella's disappearance. Despite them thinking this, the police still aren't doing all that much to get to the bottom of it. But someone is. Keith Mayo. Keith Mayo takes it upon himself to go find the evidence needed 
So after he hears about the missing pieces of carpet, he enlists the help of the local trash pickup crew. Mayo is hoping to find blood evidence on that missing carpet, and the pickup crew directs him to the Canterbury Dump, which is around two hours east of Newtown. Mayo gets himself a few helpers, and for a few days, they dig through the trash at the dump. Very unpleasant job, I'm sure. They do end up finding a part of the rug that is almost identical to the one at the Crafts house. Mayo sees stains that appear to him to be blood. This piece of rug is given to the state police lab in Meriden, which is led by one of the country's top forensic scientists, Dr. Henry C. Lee. On December 17th, the media finally gets their hands on this story. The Danbury News Times puts out a story under the headline, Police Seek Missing Newtown Woman. It is reported that the Newtown Police Chief says, quote, At this point, we consider this to be a missing person case, end quote. But our friend Keith Mayo has something else to say. He tells the same reporter that had talked to the police chief that, quote, I don't think she disappeared of her own accord. Mayo goes on to say that the police are basically digging into it on a piecemeal basis. The Newtown police are now getting criticized of their handling of Ella's case and the state's attorney's office wants jurisdiction of it given to the state police. Sadly, when Dr. Lee reports back, none of the stains on the rug tested positive for blood. As unfortunate as that is, Mayo's search for evidence does have the positive effect of drawing attention to the case and the insistence by the state's attorney's office that the case, in its entirety, be handed over to the state police investigators. The Western District Major Crimes Unit dig immediately into Richard Kraft's activities right before Hella disappeared. They pull credit card purchases and phone records for the time leading up to November 19th. They find some interesting things like the purchase of a large Westinghouse freezer on November 13th. Crafts paid $375 for it and picked it up at the appliance store in Danbury on the 17th. They also see a rental purchase for $900 from Darien Rentals. They can't see what exactly was rented, but that's a pretty hefty price tag for something. And why the giant freezer? I don't think working on Christmas Day is a goal of anyone police included, but on December 25th of 1986, the police are at work. They are at work serving a search warrant that they'd spent days getting put together. This 11-page affidavit from Detectives Quartiero and Byron lists out multiple supporting facts for why there should be a search conducted on the Crafts residence at 5 Newfield Lane. Chief among these reasons is Richard Kraft's revolving and ever-changing reasons to Hella's friends about why she is missing, and also the way he behaved on November 19th. One of those stories was even that Hella had gone to the Canary Islands with her friend Helen Dixon. The detectives in their affidavit say that their experience tells them that violent crimes leave behind detectable evidence, traces of blood or fluids, fibers, fingerprints, etc. In order to get a search warrant, the main requirement is to show that there is probable cause. Well, Detective Quartiero writes in the affidavit that, quote, based on the foregoing facts and information, the affiants have probable cause to believe and do believe that evidence of murder will be found within and upon the premise of 5 Newfield Lane. 
Prior to this, the police had found out that the Crafts and his children had gone to Florida for the holidays, so they decide that this is the perfect time to execute the warrant. Dr. Henry Lee is coming along so he can oversee the evidence collection. Christmas Day, in the afternoon, a team of state police investigators, crime scene techs, and Dr. Lee use a back window to enter 5 Newfield Lane. Now remember, this is an affluent area. And even though we talked earlier about Kraft's crazy machinery and lawn equipment making the yard an eyesore, we might still expect the house to be nice on the inside. Well, we would be wrong. The police enter and find the place is an utter mess. There's furniture just strewn about, dirty clothes laying around, dirty dishes in the sink and all over the kitchen counters. There are mattresses on the floor in the living room, along with toys and boxes of other stuff. The carpeting in the house has all been pulled up. They find a freezer, which they immediately open, but there is no body inside of it. They won't find out until later that this is not the new freezer. This is the original house freezer. They find and tag all of the weapons because, for all they know, Hella has been shot. So one of these could be the murder weapon. They spend the next few days going over every inch of the place and end up walking out with, that day, 108 pieces of evidence. A lot of that evidence is guns, shotguns, rifles, clips, a crossbow, even a couple of hand grenades. They also take hand towels, washcloths, fiber samples, and a king-size mattress with bedding. In the house, Dr. Lee did a luminol test in various places, and there were positive results for the presence of blood. Some of the hand towels that were seized were later tested, and they were positive for type O blood, which is Hella's blood type. But despite all of this evidence, it is not enough to answer the question of where is Hella. Over the next week is when things really get rolling on this case. This is when investigators find out that the $900 purchase at Darien Rentals was for a wood chipper, a very large one. This bush bandit, as it was called, was rented on November 19th. Detectives are now facing a horrifying possibility. The possibility that it wasn't wood that Crafts was going to use that chipper for. Detectives McCafferty and Brown find Joseph Hine, who was the one plowing snow during the storm. Joseph tells them about that evening and about the U-Haul with the wood chipper. Using Joseph's information, they go to the shore of the Housatonic River, which is just outside of Southbury, where Hine pointed out to them the very spot he saw the truck and the wood chipper. This part of the river is known in the area as Lake Zor. As they are looking, they see piles of wood chips along the riverbank. There are little pieces of green plastic mixed in with the chips. Detective Brown gets down on his hands and knees and starts picking through some of this material. The detectives notice there are scraps of paper in with the debris, and astonishingly, he finds a few pieces of mail. Through the little window on the envelope, he can easily read that this mail is addressed to Hella Crafts, 5 Newfield Lane, Newtown, Connecticut. Within the next hour, a search team is there, a perimeter is set up, and an organized search gets underway. Things are photographed and removed as evidence. More mail addressed to Hella is found. And the most telling and the most horrifying evidence is bone fragments, cloth, and blonde hair. Everything is bagged and sent to the state forensic lab in Meriden. And the book 
Cracking Cases, written by Dr. Lee, he says, quote, We would have to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that those remains were those of Hella Crafts and that she was murdered. Otherwise, there had been no homicide, and thus Richard Crafts could not be charged. Now, with the need to get evidence in mind, the detectives get their butts to the rental shop in Darien. They get their hands on the rental agreement, and the exact machine that Crafts rented is there in the back parking lot. The machine is towed to the forensic lab so that it can be examined. Meanwhile, the team is still working at Lake Zor. They are searching the area for at least one mile in any direction from the site. The water is really cold at this time of year, and even though the divers they're using can't stand for too long, they are still going in. They even go so far as to get permission to have the dam upriver manipulated to lower the water level where they are searching. The divers end up finding a still chainsaw in the muddy river bottom. The serial number is filed off, but the thing does not appear to have been in the water for very long. For two weeks, they search, and that hard work pays off. They find a piece of a human toe, a fragment of finger, and part of a tooth. By the time the search is done, they have 2,660 strands of blonde hair, 69 human bone slivers, 5 droplets of human blood, 2 teeth, a piece of human skull, 3 ounces of human tissue, 1 fingernail, and the piece of finger and toe I already mentioned. An arrest warrant for Richard Crafts is issued on January 11th. And at 9 p.m. that evening, a group of Connecticut state troopers and detectives go to 5 Newfield Lane. They surround the house and call Crafts on the phone and order him to come outside and surrender. His response? I'm tired. I'll take care of it in the morning. When the police get insistent that he come out, Crafts gets ticked off. He shouts into the phone, don't call me back, and hangs up. Several more phone calls ensue. Crafts keeps saying he'll come out, but he doesn't. Meanwhile, the kids are inside sleeping while the place is surrounded. At 12.30 a.m., Crafts says he'll be out in five minutes. A little bit later, a disheveled Crafts comes out and turns himself over to the police. He's arraigned and taken to the Bridgeport jail to wait. His bail is set at $750,000. Police have a theory as to what happened to Hella. The drops of blood in the bedroom lead them to believe she was struck at the foot of the bed in the early hours of November 19th. Then Crafts took his wife's body to the basement where he put her into the newly purchased freezer. He then wakes up the nanny and the kids and takes them to his sister's house. Later that day, Crafts takes Hella's frozen body to some secluded spot and uses the chainsaw to make smaller portions, puts them into plastic garbage bags, and then back into the freezer. The next day, using the night as cover, he takes those packages and the wood chipper to the river and puts those packages into the wood chipper. Due to the timing of when Joseph Hine saw Crafts and the wood chipper, police suspect that Crafts had already finished disposing of Hella's body and was either still getting rid of other evidence, like the chainsaw, or running wood through the chipper to clean it out. Of course, what Crafts didn't know is that the machine didn't toss all of her into the river. Some of it ended up on the bank along with the mail that must have been in her pocket at the time of the murder. Because of all of the publicity surrounding the case, the trial is moved to New London, Connecticut. 
the publicity focused on the sensational method of the killing. In fact, a New York City paper, the Daily News, used the headline, Chopped to Pieces, in big print on January 14th of 87. That is the day that Richard Crafts was arrested. State Attorney Walter Flanagan is leading the prosecution, and he puts a gaggle of forensic experts up there on the stand. Dr. Lee testifies about the hoard of evidence they found in and around Lake Zor. And despite the fact that the amount of tissue and bone they found was pretty minuscule, each item provided insight, like that the bones were cut with a heavy-edged instrument that produced a cutting and crushing force. And even though the fiber tissues and hair were mixed in with the wood chips and other debris, it was clear it was all cut with the same machine. A key piece of evidence is the chainsaw that was recovered from the bottom of the Housatonic River. The chainsaw serial number had been filed off, but the forensic lab was able to restore it so that the numbers were readable. There was blonde hair, blue fibers, and tissue in the teeth of the chainsaw blade as well. A receipt from the chainsaw matched one belonging to Richard Crafts, showing that he had paid $644.95 in January of 81. Now here's the thing. The police didn't actually have the receipt, but guess who did? Keith Mayo, private investigator. He had it because when Hella Crafts hired him, she gave him a box of Crafts paperwork and guess what was in that box? You guessed it. The chainsaw receipt. The forensic odontology analysis is what proved conclusively that the remains found at Lake Zor were indeed those of Hella Crafts. In the search, they'd found two pieces of human teeth, and one of those still had a piece of jawbone attached to it. An expert testified that he believed, quote, this fracture occurred by a blunt force that fractured it to the center line and took the jaw with it. Now, the other tooth specimen had part of a crown attached. After reviewing x-rays of Hella's teeth, he compared them and found that they matched Hella's lower left bicuspid perfectly. He went on to say he was medically certain that it was a positive comparison. Another expert, Dr. Lowell Levine, who is a forensic odontologist for the New York State Police, backed up the first expert. If you want to know what a badass Dr. Levine is, he assisted in identifying the remains of the Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele in 1985, and he also verified for Congress that the body buried in Washington, D.C. Memorial is indeed President John F. Kennedy. On June 23rd, the jury starts to deliberate. For two weeks, the nine men and three women struggle to reach a verdict. And you might be wondering why. It seems pretty clear, based on the evidence, that Crafts is guilty. Apparently, there was one man on that jury who absolutely refused to vote guilty. One juror said, quote, It wasn't chaos. It was hell. End quote. In the end, the other 11 jurors could not convince the one holdout to change his mind. After the 53-day trial, a mistrial had to be declared on July 15th of 1988. A new trial is immediately agreed upon. But again, due to the publicity over the case, the new trial would be held in Norwalk, Connecticut. On September 7th, the second trial began. This trial was almost a twin to the first, with the same compelling evidence through which Kraft sits with the same benign, unmoved appearance. 
The case goes to the jury on November 20th, and after eight hours, they reach a unanimous verdict of guilty. This jury, comprised of 11 men and one woman, felt the evidence pointed clearly to guilt. For his part, Kraft showed no emotion when the verdict was read. Interestingly, the verdict was announced almost three years to the day that Hello was murdered. In January of 1990, Richard Crafts is sentenced to 50 years in state prison. But the story isn't quite over. Due to a goofy law that allows time off the sentence for statutory good time, Richard Crafts was released in 2020. He was released to a transitional housing program for veterans at the age of 83. If Crafts was sentenced today, he would not be eligible for any early release credits. So that wraps it up for this episode. In your spare time, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook at CrimeBiscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. If you're ever driving down a road and you see a person at the side of that road with a wood chipper in the middle of the night, maybe make a little phone call to the police. Better to find out the person is just chilling than to find out later you might have helped the police to catch someone in the act of disposing of a body. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.